welcome to another episode of Bitter and Jaded. I'm your host, Joshua Scott, and today I have with me a man who knows a lot about exhibits. Just don't ask him to pimp your ride. My friend Harris. What's up, man? How's it going, man? <laughs> you doing all right, bud? I'm doing all right. <laughs> so tell people a little bit about yourself. All right. So my name's Harris. I've worked for uh, the museum field for about six years now. Through that time, worked in exhibits, like you said. Also been more of the public-facing, talking to people, kind of docent-type work. A little bit of reenactment, and I've done research work and development for the type of things that you see when you go to a museum and have someone talking to you. Fun, man. Fun. So what kind of museums have you worked for? So right now, I work for a nonprofit that actually runs a chain of museums in my area. Mm. And that's actually a really common thing that you'll see, either... You'll see a lot of historic sites that are government national parks run. You'll see independent sites that are going to be on one focused area. That's where you're going to see a lot of your more niche museums that are more tourist focused. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see nonprofits that they're in it for the preservation of the site. They're in it for the care of the site. And of course, they're in it for bringing that history to people. So the particular nonprofit I work for manages a couple of military history sites uh, manages a couple of uh, industrial history sites and then a general history for the area that I live in as well. Oh, okay. That's, that's super cool. So what drew you to be a museum guy, man? Uh, well, in college, I uh, started in nursing. That didn't work out. Went to public health. Uh, actually chose not to have that work out and kind of got stuck with a bit of a dilemma on what major to pursue. Mm-hmm. While I was shopping for majors, I actually was really, really uh, impressed by the head of the history department of the college I went to and got a history degree. <laughs> now, I uh, I had friends who, some of them would say, history, there's no future in that. Uh... And uh, my favorite one was as well was, so uh, what kind of what kind of sport do you want to teach? Since there's a running joke that historians become gym teachers. <laughs> but I hunkered down, I followed through, and I really was just passionate about getting into the museum field. And six years later, I'm still doing it. So. Hey, that's good, man. So were you always like a history buff? Because you said you wanted to go be a doctor, and that didn't work <laughs> out. You were just like, well, I do love history. <laughs> uh, that was a pretty big part of it. When I was younger, history was what really clicked for me. Mm. I tend to be a little bit better at writing and talking things out than I am at multiple choice type tests. So as a kid, it was screw the multiple choice tests. I just wanna, I just wanna be able to talk and teach and work my way out through things. Okay. And history was a good fit for that. That's cool, man. So how like how does one get into the museum field? You had to go to college for it, I'm sure. But then what? You just knock on a door and you're like, "Hey, I want to be a, I want to work here." Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, in a lot of cases. <laughs> now, right now with uh, COVID going on, this is it's a little more difficult than just knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, just not trying to be too somber with this, but the museum field was one that was hit really hard with the COVID epidemic. Yeah. And you see a lot of sites closing their doors or a lot of sites doing temporary shutdowns just because, I mean, people aren't traveling. And when tourists and uh, traffic is a big part of what keeps your doors open, you got to do what you got to do at the end of the day. Yeah. But in more pleasant times, yeah, they are usually always hiring in one aspect or another. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the national park sites or a lot of the uh, more accessible sites will take volunteers if you've got the time to volunteer. Uh, in my case, it was I filled out a job app. They said, hey, you're just what we're looking for. And I started at one site, and then they trained me at another site, and another site, and another site. And suddenly I can talk about so many different categories of history in my area because... They just never stopped training me. <laughs> well, that that's good. At least, you know, you get all this cool experience, you know, and you get to learn more stuff. So that, that sounds like the kind of the, the fun part of it. Cause like, I've always loved history as well, but like my problem is retaining it. I don't know how you guys can recite the same stuff, like all the time. <laughs> so part of it is uh recitation. Like you said, you just, you keep saying it until it sticks. <laughs> But uh, what I usually tell people is something that I 
echo off a professor I had at one point where he goes, when you're talking history, there's two big aspects to it. And that's the dates and the dead people and the narrative. (laughs) And without the dates and the dead people, the narrative doesn't happen. Yeah. And without the narrative, no one's going to want to listen to the dates and the dead people. (laughs) So a very big part of what I do when I'm talking in front of people is definitely that kind of recollection of it's repetition. I'm saying the same facts three, four times a day, Mm -hmm. but it's developing it into a story that people will want to listen to and that people remember. Uh, People are going to remember this site was founded in 1833, Mm -hmm. but they are going to remember if I talk about the civil war in regards to a railroad site, for example, they're going to remember if I say this site stopped being used for trains and started being used for cannons. Yeah. Yeah. like that so you get that kind of uh that kind of trivia night information <laughs> and that's what sticks with the people i found in my experience <laughs> you know, that's a question i just thought of right now do you like wreck at trivia man are you like the go-to <laughs> like you just destroying people at the bar trivia <laughs> so uh i am pretty good at the history trivia i'm pretty good with dates and dead people uh, <laughs> as is my field uh, I I can't remember sports statistics to save my life. And that's not to say that I don't. That's not to say I don't follow through with sports. I've mm. uh, been a Ravens fan since I was a kid because I grew up outside of Baltimore. Yeah, but uh, but I I can't remember those types of statistics. They don't stick for me. So <laughs> yeah. I, I think for a good trivia team, you need some balance. Yeah, man. Well, I think everyone needs like a, like you know most teams need like a good kicker or something. You need a sports guy. Everyone needs a sports guy because like I don't know sports, man. I got pop trivia, you know, commercials and stuff like that, but I do not have any sports. At all, that's gone. I pushed that directly out. <laughs> so yeah, well-rounded teams. The key, yeah, man. There. Yeah, man. So like to work at these different types of like museums, do you have to like like study like you have to go to school and have like certain degrees to like to say work at like a history museum or to work at like a um, I don't know a different type of history museum? Do you have to know a different field? So generally, they're going to train you on whatever the site is, and in some cases, that means you're going to be observing the tours or you're going to be observing the docents for a period of time until you feel comfortable saying what they're saying. Mm-hmm. In other sites that I've had the opportunity of working for, it's here's a, uh, here's a 35 page packet of history. We want you to know it by next week. Oh, <laughs> uh, so it depends. Um, <laughs> now, even within the sites themselves, you're going to have different areas of expertise, different areas of strengths. Uh, one of the sites I kind of alluded to is a railroad site, for example. Mm -hmm. And within that railroad site itself, we are expected to know the general history. When was it founded? When was it running trains? Things like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't have a lot of basis of engineering history. I can't tell you when the first trains were made, but I'm pretty good at architectural history. So I can, talk to people and say let's talk about the bricks this building's made of let's talk about why these buildings were designed they were so a lot of the sites do give the opportunity to let you shine in areas that you may be stronger in Ah, okay i got so it it's a little bit generalist and a little bit specialist uh in regards to the degree itself i getting a history degree isn't knowing all of history forever uh, to be quite honest, getting a history degree is learning how to write really well <laughs> and learning how to convince people that you know what you're talking about. Gotcha. <laughs> so over the course of my college career, I took history through European history in the Middle, middle Ages. I took a bunch of years of Russian and Eastern European history because I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. I took Caribbean history. I talk, took German film history. Cool. Uh, and my capstone at the end of all of that was America's role in World War II. Mm. And my big finale was a 65-page paper on Operation Torch, which was the North African campaign in World War II. And so it wasn't, I'm learning everything about everything because I have to know everything about everything. It was, I'm learning what I'm interested in and I'm learning how to write and communicate about those different areas. Oh, that's, that's good. So you can kind of pick and choose like what you want to know. You don't have to be like, you know, if you don't, if you don't care about World War II, you don't have to study World War II. 
you can study no. something else. That's awesome. <laughs> and a lot of school, a lot of schools will offer different options for those different areas as well. Okay. Uh, so you'll definitely see a lot of kind of trends in what they're offering. So there are a lot of military history courses because, well, there's a lot of military history. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you'll also see a lot of courses that focus on uh, more civic side history. So the civil rights movement or development of our government and the way things are. So like, how cool can this job get? Like with the right education, you taking the right <laughs> courses. Can you like, I don't know, touch mummies, man? <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't touched any mummies. <laughs> I don't live in an area where we have terribly many mummies. <laughs> um, but on the archive side of things, I've gotten to handle a lot of historic firearms and weapons cool. that generally interest people. And there's a lot of human history and smaller things that you get to interact with as well. And one of the biggest examples we have of that was there was a Revolutionary War battle that was fought in the area that I'm in. And the wife of the British commander who is defending the city from uh, from the rebels trying to occupy it. So, the uh, Patriots, yeah. go us. Uh, but she wrote an extensive collection of letters to her husband and wrote in her journal about literally getting bombarded by French and American cannons. Cool. And we have those. No way. <laughs> but we also have some of her personal belongings. And these are things like shoes and uh, little dainty handkerchief type things. Mm. And where those might not necessarily be on display uh, year round, they're the type of things that we're able to interact with, we're able to bring out. Now, on a more active side of things... I also work for several of the military sites and with the military sites, you generally will see the type of military buffs who want to come out on their own accord. Mm. But because that tourism is a really big part of it, a lot of the sites will do something to kind of draw people in. And that's generally going to be firearms and artillery demonstrations. Cool. So I, uh, during a busier season, literally have gotten to fire cannons for a living. Yeah. <laughs> Not many people can say that, man. <laughs> no, it's, it's unique. It's definitely unique. <laughs> so what is like your day-to-day -day like? When you get up and get dressed and go to the museum, what do you do? It changes day by day. So it depends on the site that I'm going to. It depends on what tasks need to get handled at those sites. Sometimes it's more groundskeeping type work. So I'm out there at this... 100, 200 year old fort mm. just picking weeds just to make sure that the site continues to be preserved. But more often than not, it tends to be more of that kind of public facing. So I'm out there sometimes in a period uniform, sometimes it's in a polo and jeans uh, talking to people and expressing to them the history of the site, why they should be interested in it. And a lot of the time that also means I'm doing these types of demonstrations in the period uniform firing the muskets and the cannons for them and explaining how all that works too. That's rad. <laughs> well, that's good. At least it stays varied, you know, um, you know, I, cause when I first originally was thinking, I was like, I wonder all the stuff he gets to do, you know? Cause like I was thinking, Oh, if he just has to run tours all the time, that sounds like it would be tedious. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely something different every day, which yeah. is part of why I've stuck with it as long as I have, I think. Yeah, that's cool. So, like, when you run a tour, like, how do you keep things, like, exciting and fresh? Like, because, you know, you have to do it every day. Do you ever, like, throw in, like, fun jokes or you just, like, scare the kids? <laughs> uh, so, in, in regards to scaring the kids, we actually do field trips at some of the military sites where we get to take on a bit of a military persona and scare them. So, that's <laughs> that's, its own, that's its own fun in and of itself. <laughs> but it really comes around to what... Uh, what we were saying earlier in that it's such a broad field. Mm. And so there's a lot of personal enrichment and you absolutely could just give the same two or nine to five every day, whatever. Mm. But what you'll see a lot of is people seeking out new and different information to add to their tours or to expand their own, uh, knowledge basis of knowledge. So that way they have more things to talk about over time. And that's, is where a lot of the strengths will come from. Now, some of the things that you end up looking up don't aren't because you're necessarily interested in them, but because a guest asked you and you had no idea. <laughs> 
And so as a result, it's, I never want to get asked a question I can't answer again. <laughs> but sometimes it's just genuine interest. Yeah. Uh, we, a lot of the sites are going to have a library of every book written since the 1960s on the subject matter at those sites. And you're going to have the opportunity to read a lot of them. So I, and let's take the civil war, for example, my own area of expertise there is in civil war medicine. But that has its fingers in so many different pots that as a result, I've learned about cooking and camp life in Civil War, uh, the development of the medical departments, uh, what, it, what it was like to be discharged as a soldier during the Civil War. And then some more interesting and more niche things like the fact that uh, the South had Confederate owned distilleries like these were state-run <laughs> whiskey distilleries that they made because they were deemed a me medical necessity and so you get kind of deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole mm -hmm. but as you're able to bring that type of information to people it makes them in turn go oh i should look that up that's that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah that is cool man because i didn't you know you saw a lot of this stuff most people have no idea like you know, like how it got there and all, and all this other stuff, you know, it's, it's just fascinating to find this kind of stuff out. You know, it's like, it's just like with the internet we have in our pockets, you know, you, you find yourself find, learning like, Oh, I want to look this one thing up six hours later. You know, I've joined this like Facebook group and my life's changed. <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you got a computer sitting in your pocket at all times. Yeah, so man. Well, I'm going to use, right. <laughs> so how do things like end up in a museum? Like what makes something like museum worthy? Just cause it's so, old. <laughs> A lot of, and this is actually a very important uh, aspect of archives and curation type work, and working with our curator, especially over this past year when there wasn't as much public work to do, it really opened my eyes to a lot of that challenge of what's museum worthy and what, uh, what belongs in a museum. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that it needs to be significant enough or unique enough that it needs to be preserved so obviously something like uh confederate bullets mm -hmm. yeah you want to have some in preservation but there's so many out there that you could probably find them in the marketplace and just about any battlefield site because people do their metal detecting and all that yeah so part one is it needs to be a truly unique object to be worthy of being put on display mm-hmm but there's also a difference between display and protection in the types of things that you're keeping because a lot of documents, fabrics, things like that, they can actually become photosensitive with age. So in your average museum, there's going to be an archives, which is probably in the basement. Mm -hmm. That's a climate controlled environment that has pieces that aren't on display, but they're still being preserved and cared for. That's um, really cool. So, like, you, cause so, you have to keep it out of the sunlight, I guess, because that would just damage it, or like flash photography and all that stuff could like really mess mm -hmm. up some of this old stuff. All of those things, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and there's also all sorts of little like bugs and mites and things like that that you you don't even realize on your day to day type stuff. Yeah, but that can uh, really tear those things up. So, is it unique? Does it need to be preserved? And then, uh, of course, does it tell a story? So, uh, you might have this old and historic piece to it and a museum might have five or six different copies of a similar piece, but does this one have enough of a story that can be put on display and have something to talk about to it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't want something sitting there. Have you ever had anything, have you ever had anything come in that was on display and you're just like, why? <laughs> <laughs> So yes, uh, <laughs> and that goes that goes in two different directions because some people hold sentimentality to things in different ways. Mm -hmm. So talking to railroad site, you'll get people who come in and they go, "I've got this box of stuff that my grandfather who worked on the railroad has, and I want you to have it." And you kind of have to go, "Well, that's great, man, but we can't. We don't have the shelf space for it." <laughs> Uh, and you, you do have to turn people away like that. But conversely, there's some things where it's just kind of like, I mean, someone's interested in talking about it. I might not necessarily be, but if it matters to somebody, then it matters to them. So we're going to talk about it and we're going to, we're going to 
I'll take care of it. I gotcha. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, you know, I didn't really think that people would bring their own stuff, but of course, why wouldn't they? You know, like oh, well, a lot of the, a lot of the pieces. Mm, yeah, a lot of the pieces are donations. So it's something that was in somebody's family or something that somebody found while they're metal detecting or artifact hunting, which is a more common thing you might think. <laughs> but they get these, they bring them in. Sometimes they think they're going to get something for their donations, which kind of tells you that they probably don't know what the term donation means, but <laughs> that's a little beside the point. And so, but in some cases, it's these people just don't have room for it themselves, but they still want to know that it's taken care of. And that's part of the job if you can help facilitate it. Okay. Well, have you ever had anything come through that was like illegal? Like you're not supposed to have? <laughs> <laughs> um, I personally have not. Uh-huh. Uh, unfortunately, and I am pretty sure if we have, it's the type of thing that we haven't really advertised or talked about. <laughs> I just want to, I'm just playing, you know, poking around, man, you know. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. We, As it stands, we already have to have a bit of a relationship with the local law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, because with the military sites, we're firing gunpowder off pretty regularly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, we have to toe the line with ATF regulations in regards to our gunpowder storage and our safety with the uh, equipment that we're using. Okay. <laughs> but also... Uh, when we're, whenever we're downtown and doing those reenactments in the middle of downtown, we have to make sure that they know, like, hey, there's a bunch of guns going off. That's uh, that's just us shooting blanks. <laughs> it's cool, guys. Chill. <laughs> um, there, we actually do a reenactment of one of the battles on the anniversary of that battle every year, and that's in the middle of the fall. Uh-huh. And this battle was fought at 3 in the morning. <laughs> so we're out there... At three in the morning. Oh my god! <laughs> and unfortunately, the the park that the uh, battlefield was preserved on happens to sit right across the street from some college dorms. Mm. So we're having to let these poor, poor security staff of these college dorms know, hey, we're we're going to be firing artillery like two blocks from you, so uh, you're probably going to get some complaints. <laughs> That is a fantastic. That's fantastic, man. <laughs> you know, these kids are a lot of these kids are from out of state too. They have no idea that you know they would just be like, "What is going on outside?" <laughs> well, similar to us, just kind of waving them off. They just kind of wave us off. I think with time, <laughs> but oh man, um, that's fantastic. I think I think the most bizarre one I've had was uh, we actually had the Coast Guard come to one of our sites. And say, hey, we had a bomb threat, so can you not fire any artillery until we give you the all clear? Because the last thing we need is our guys freaking out because they heard an explosion in the distance. (laughs) Holy crap. So awesome. uh, You you get some strange happenings sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, man. That is that's so cool. But I mean, of course, you don't want those guys, they're already jumpy, I'm sure. So what are like some of your favorite exhibits that you have to deal with? Is there anything like that's super rad? You're like, I would talk about this every single day of my life if I could. So there's a couple and some of them are things that I've helped uh, curate with time. And some of them are just things that I've had the opportunity to work off of. Um, obviously anything you get to handle. So muskets, artillery, mm-hmm. we actually at one of the civil war sites have a collection of medical equipment from the period. And so actually getting to handle these 160 plus year old saws and tourniquets and things like that. Uh, and getting to kind of show people that in some ways, yeah, things were kind of medieval back then, (laughs) but explaining them the progression of, well, we started here and where, yes, we have more advanced tools. Now they're not that different. Yeah. Yeah. There's still a saw. It's just better. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. now it's got electricity so you're not spending as much time cutting the person yeah. oh, man. <laughs> or things like that uh or the fact that the uh the historic tourniquets is basically just a belt with a big like thumb screw on it <laughs> and that looks horrible it looks like a torture device but when you think of modern tourniquets the uh t-bars it's similar a similar idea you're using a bar to create tension to create that uh cut off of the blood flow yeah yeah oh, so it's just man. 
how how nice does it look? <laughs> so, like, what got you into this medical history stuff, man? Just like the the sheer like craziness of it, because you know there was like, man, you know, there was some like oh, stuff. I know. Um, that, that gets into where I started out. I wanted to be a nurse as a kid, and that didn't happen. And I wanted to get into public health, and that didn't happen. And it, the interest never really went away. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit of the drive did over time. So I'd kind of changed lanes into that focus on medical history. Mm-hmm. And the more you learn about it, the more you learn how far we've come in a lot of senses. Mm-hmm. But also a lot of this idea of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> uh, and sometimes. A saw is a saw. Sometimes uh, applying pressure is something that they figured out a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and then fu- one of the things that's drawn me to it the most, and this is where a lot of my basis in military history comes from, because I started with medical history before military history, but is the fact that you see wartime and medicine being very, very intertwined with each other. Mm-hmm. And it's horrible to say, but when you think of it as, well, what site has more patients in need of help than a, uh, a battlefield or a military zone, and yeah. that's just how it is. So you see a lot of medical advancements coming from from the front, yeah. in a sense. And that's what gets kind of crazy is, like, you know, they were, like, doing this, like, under fire, and, like, some of the decisions they were making were the best decisions that they could make, but also it's just like, holy crap, you did what? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and that's something that still goes on today, too. So recently, uh, I say recently, this was four years ago, I did some time uh, in the EMS field, just trying to make a little extra money to pay for a wedding. Mm-hmm. But uh, while I was doing so, some of what they talk about is how coming through the wars in the Middle East, you have these techniques that the army medics were figuring out were keeping soldiers alive. Well, a lot of that comes back home, and you see modern-day emergency medicine taking the techniques that they're figuring out in the military and adapting them, making them a little cleaner. <laughs> uh, but there are things that work, and so if they work in a battlefield, they work at home. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, so. man. <laughs> so you've now mentioned a couple times the uh, the reenactment stuff. Like, what kind of reenactments have you done besides like shooting guns at three a.m. Man, like <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it is the day to day stuff. Uh-huh. I I haven't done battle reenactments like the guys that you see on a uh, all the different pop culture. Yeah, but I have done in uniform living history type reenactments at these sites. So that means being in a wool uniform in the middle of the southeastern summer heat. Um, but that also includes kind of living their their life. So eating the way that they would have eaten, cooking food over a campfire, doing day-to-day chores like splitting wood and things like that, and then handling the weapons and the equipment. A really big important part of handling historic firearms and artillery is understanding how they did it and why they did it the way they did it. Mm-hmm. Because a very fortunate thing that we have is records of all the drill that they did. And so when you understand why they held the gun a certain way or why they wore what they wore, it makes a lot of sense in why you're dressing up the way that you're dressing up to live their history. And so a big part of the reenactment life uh, in that aspect is just drilling because it's what they did the past time. It's what they did to become incredibly proficient at what they did. And so it's what you do to become almost as proficient as they were. Yeah. Probably not as proficient because it's not your whole life. Like it was for them, but close enough. Yeah, man. Yeah. So like, is it like, so like, you know, you you work for a museum, but does everyone who's doing this uh, work for the museum or is it like volunteer based? Can I go sign up and, and get my little suit going and ready to rock? So this is a discussion that you see a lot of, uh, more so in the reenactment field than in the museum field. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it's it's not necessarily something... It, like it, I, I don't want to use the term way of life, but it really is for some people. Where they did it with their dads, or they did it with their granddads. 
and they grew up around this environment of preserving their history through reenactment. And so for some people it's, it's, uh, it's in their blood Yeah, and it's, it's not something that they're doing because they're getting paid to do it. It's something they're doing because they legitimately enjoy it or because it's that much of a tradition for them. Uh, other people, it's because they're interested in preserving the history and in some cases in experiencing the history. I know one gentleman who he is a blacksmith and he also restores and takes care of historical firearms and smaller pieces as well. Mm-hmm. And for him, he just started with it because he thought it was cool. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was. It was. I'm interested in learning how to how to hit glowing metal and turn it into things. Yeah, and then it turned into okay. Now I'm working at a historic site using a coal forge to heat up the metal till it glows, so I can hit it and turn it into things. Yeah, <laughs> and it it just kept going, and so he got more and more invested in what he did to a point where. Now, whenever I have a piece that I'm interested in getting restored, he's my go-to guy. <laughs> That's so cool. So, like, what all goes into like putting on one of these uh, one of these reenactments? Like, so everyone has to get suited up, right? Like, yes. <laughs> you know, you have to practice. You have to like, like, so like, is there like certain things you have to do? Is it is it like a show, like a production? A little bit. Uh, so the couple different aspects that you're going to get into are largely focused around making sure that you're being as authentic as possible. Mm-hmm. So no modern wristwatches, no cell phones, nothing like that. Um, priority, no facial piercings, tattoos that are showing in places that they wouldn't have necessarily had them back then, things like that too. Mm-hmm. So you see kind of a bit of an interdepartmental marriage between people who are preserving in learning about how the uniforming worked and then the people who are doing the drill and learning how to handle the equipment for uh, presentation sake. And so an average day, if we're doing something like reenactment, the first part of the day is usually going to be opening up the site, taking care of whatever groundskeeping that we're doing to make sure that everything looks nice. And if we have some time before time comes to suit up, then it's usually drill. So it's, in modern day street clothes with training equipment or with unloaded weapons, then it's going to be going step by step through the drill, just piece by piece until you get that real kind of repetitive motion to the point where you don't even have to think about what you're doing. You're just following the commands. Gotcha. Gotcha. Time comes that you start to expect people. You're going to take some time kidding out. And depending on what era it is, that could be five minutes. That could be half an hour to an hour. Oh, wow. Um, the further through history you get, the more kind of utilitarian the clothing is. Mm. So when you're, when you're thinking 150 years ago, well, then it's going to usually be like pants with suspenders and undershirt and a jacket. Mm -hmm. Your boots are probably going to have laces and you're going to have some kind of cover. That's not that hard to put on. But if you go 200, 250 years ago, that's when you're getting into all the buttons and buckles. (laughs) And that's when it's okay. This is this is a bit of an affair to put everything on, but <laughs> I I think I can do it by myself. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lot of that just comes from the fashion of the times. So I got you. So how do you deal with wearing all that stuff in the heat, man? You know, Georgia gets uh hot, hot. You hot. get used to it. <laughs> it it's not great, but you get used to it. Uh. The couple different tricks that you learn are, first and foremost, uh, they they wore the equipment with a purpose. Mm. So they didn't wear wool because they wanted to be hot and uncomfortable. They wore wool because wool's flame retardant. Mm. And so when you're using black powder firearms and artillery, that's a lot of sparks and embers in the air. Yeah. You don't want to get caught on fire. Yeah, that'd be bad. So it's better to be hot and uncomfortable for a little while than to be arguably hot and uncomfortable for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the first part. But the second part is that, and this goes into a little bit of that authenticity where you learn over time that they would allow the soldiers to unbutton some of the equipment and let it breathe. Yeah. Uh, or in some of the military sites, they use a term which was operating in your shirt sleeves, which means taking the jacket off. Now, Taking your jacket off in the middle of summer might seem like common sense today, mm-hmm. but in the 1800s, it was 
it wasn't socially acceptable to be in public without some kind of covering garment on. So you'd have a vest or a jacket or something on. Yeah. So it would, it'd be like running around in your underwear today. (laughs) It was was a faux pas. It was socially unbecoming. Well, if you're at a fort in the middle of the summer heat, surrounded by no one else, but a whole bunch of other soldiers, they didn't care. (laughs) And so you would see the call to operate in your shirt sleeves, which means do your day-to-day tasks, do your normal uh, jobs without the jacket on. Mm. So having that knowledge that that was something that they did allows us, in turn, to be historically accurate while also not dying in the, in the wool. <laughs> yeah, man. Okay, that's cool. At least there's like, at least there's like that, you know, because uh, that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's my weight loss plan. I eat whatever I want in the summertime, and I sweat it all out. So. <laughs> it's all about perspective. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so with the firing of the firearms, um, like, how long does it take them to, like, basically give you the okay? They're not going to – I doubt they're going to be like, here you go. Is there, like, weeks, months <laughs> until they're, like, you're ready to at least, you know, do it in front of people? So we operate – using guidelines that were set by the National Park Services, by the uh, Department of the ATF, so alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And we're pretty strict on those guidelines. So the parts to it are you have to do an observational period where you're just seeing it done and learning how it works. Then we have uh, training periods where you're, you're not even handling a real firearm. You're handling a fake firearm to learn how all the steps work. Mm-hmm. And everything you're doing is very regimented. It's very drill-based. So it's, you're learning by the book. Uh, And with that, you learn your safety ranges. You learn how to safely handle them. Uh, You have to learn misfire procedures. So how to handle your weapon in the event that the gunpowder doesn't go off. Mm -hmm. And you have to learn how to remain very calm with those things, too. Because it's definitely the type of situation that could cause issues if you are not calm. Yeah. Um... And then finally, you have to take a test. And it's a written test that covers all of that. Mm. And once you take that test, that's when you get the okay to, to handle them. Okay. Well, I'm glad there's checks. So it's, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're not just handing these types of things to anyone and saying, here, have fun. <laughs> well, it looks fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, like, is that anything bad, like, ever happened, like, like, to you guys? Like, if somebody, like, you said if you mishandled it wrong, like, what could, like, would it just explode? Could the gun just explode? <laughs> so, you're more likely to get burned than for anything to explode. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually why you wear all the heavy equipment and why it's kind of recommended that you have kind of a clean cut to you. Mm. Uh, that's why historically when you get back into a lot of those black powder Napoleonic eras, the fashion were, was for men to be clean shaven. Mm-hmm. So that way when you're handling these firearms as a soldier, you're not going to set your face on fire <laughs> uh, because of your beard. Yeah. So the little things like that, but that's honestly probably the biggest challenge. And if you're, if you're lighting yourself on fire, you're probably doing something wrong, which is what we <laughs> want to avoid. Um, but we do always want to be very cogent of these types of issues that can be presented, and that's where you get into your safety ranges. So the idea is that you, you want to make sure your audience is a safe distance to your uh, to your side or to the rear of you. Mm-hmm. So in the event that, God forbid, something go wrong, they're not going to get harmed, and hopefully you're operating in such a way that either you're not going to get harmed either, or that you're going to minimize the harm. <laughs> uh, and we we joke about it. We'll we'll say, God forbid, this can go off. We want y'all safe distance away, and our company's insurance will take care of it. <laughs> uh, if we're being a little more modern, if we're not being modern, then it's a lot more precise of we want to make sure you get a good view or we want to make sure that you're safe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I've got, I've had minor burns. I've had minor cuts from the piece, from the pieces that we use, uh, the flints that they use to throw sparks on the muskets are very sharp. Uh-huh. And so if you have even like your thumb or your index finger in a slightly wrong position, it's going to cut you. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I've gotten flash burns along the side of my hand. I used to actually have very, very hairy kind of knuckles no not more <laughs> no. uh, a lot of that's been singed off with years 
But do you ever have to but, deal with like the audience being like jerks or like not caring about how cool it is you guys are in full period shooting cannons? So I'm gonna say yes and no to that. Uh-huh. Uh generally because it's not in the military sites that you see a lot of that. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the military sites are advertised as cannons. Yeah. Or as guns. And you'll get people who kind of glaze over when you're when you're giving the dates and the dead people and you're giving the history talk. Yeah. Because it, it's not what they're there for. They're there for the cannons. They <laughs> were advertised a cannon, so dang it, they want a cannon. Yeah, I came here for the cannon. Why is the dude talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with experience, you kind of learn to read your audience. Uh-huh. And you can kind of learn to cater what you're talking about to the audience. So you're going to try to talk in a way that gets interesting to them. <laughs> That's cracking jokes. That's giving these funny historic anecdotes or these tragic historic anecdotes in some cases. Mm -hmm. But if you get the people who really just don't give a rat, well, that's when you kind of skip through some of the things they don't necessarily care for Uh and get into the meat of what they're interested in. Cannons. For my own personal... (laughs) Yeah. Well, for my own personal balance... I generally will try to weave that narrative history in with the artillery history. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of, well, why is this cannon where it's at? Let's talk about that real quick. And so it's that idea of, I can point to what they can see. I can get them to actually visualize these types of things. Mm -hmm. And then I can explain to them how the cannon functions. So they're still getting some kind of history and some kind of a lesson out of it. And that's the big goal, is you want to just have them taking something away from it. Make it worth their time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's cool, man. So what was it like? All right. Tell me what it's like to fire a cannon, because I doubt that'll ever happen (laughs) to me. But, like, that seems like the most rad (laughs) thing you could possibly do. (laughs) So I'm going to preface this by saying I've been firing cannons for coming up on six years. And I've gotten gotten a little little, uh, jaded on it, just because... It's not as cool after six years, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely cool. And there's a bunch of different ways that they would have fired cans over the years. And there's a bunch of different types and sizes of cans that we personally use just in a, a reenactment sense, but also in, uh, well, as they would have used. Yeah. And so it's very strict. It's very regimented. You have to do all the steps in the right order. Otherwise it's not going to go off. Yeah. That's, that that's part one. <laughs> uh, you also really have to respect the piece that you're using. So we're not using, you, you can't just go to Dick sporting goods and, uh, and buy cannon rounds. You actually have to pack the gunpowder yourself and make sure that your rounds are good to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we teach people to respect the piece that they're using. But when you get everything set, when everything's in place, a lot of the artillery that we use is Civil War era, is 1800s. Mm-hmm. And by that point, they were using what were called friction primers, which were basically little firecrackers that get started by a by an eight-foot-long ripcord. Oh, cool. <laughs> and so you've got that ripcord tense. Uh, you're holding onto this rope, knowing that as soon as you pull it, this thing's going to go boom. Mm. And a you get just this very kind of cinematic moment of you got your hand up, you tell your audience, uh, gun number one ready or whatever artillery piece it is. You rip that rope and it's not as surprising when you're the one firing because you know exactly when it's going to go off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) As an, as, as an audience member, you don't know that exact when's this gun going to go off, but when you're the one pulling the rhetorically, you know. And so you can kind of, brace yourself for it a little bit That's so um cool. now i fired everything ranging from what's called a swivel gun which is a half pounder cannon mm-hmm. uh, and half pounder is referential to the weight of the bullet that it was firing so it's basically like an inch wide ball bearing okay. that a swivel gun would shoot all the way through a nine inch dahlgren and a nine inch Dahlgren would fire a 68 pound cannonball to about two miles oh. uh so as such, you also see a very big difference in the amount of gunpowder necessary to fire these things, uh-huh. even if you're just shooting blanks. And so, with a swivel gun, it's only a couple ounces of gunpowder. The Dahlgren, you're firing four or five pounds of gunpowder. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so, you can really feel those big guns when they shoot. Yeah. 
<laughs> and that's why historically a lot of their guys went deaf. So we use hearing protection uh, in form of earplugs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the swivel gun's different because it's an older type of cannon. And as such, instead of using a uh, primer, so like a firecracker, they use gunpowder trails. Or so, they used uh, so pri- like Looney Tunes, qu- like uh, you light it and then like kind of yeah, but <laughs> instead of instead of like the the long trail, the sh- it's you have a cartridge, you bite it, you tear it, you open it, and you fill the vent of the cannon yourself, mm-hmm. and you're using basically a torch to light this gun. Cool. <laughs> and since you have to keep this gun aimed too while you're shooting it, you are holding onto a metal rod attached to the back of this cannon. <laughs> So while handy. lighting the gunpowder in the cannon. And these guns will rock. Yeah. Like they will actually <laughs> rock back and forth. So it's like firing the biggest handgun you've ever uh you've ever shot. That's with absolutely the small ones. So insane, it, man. <laughs> it's not as much gunpowder as the big boys, but yeah. it's still its own experience as well. So one more question, then well, I got I got other things I want to talk about, but oh, it's so cool. Uh has it ever not worked? Has it ever like in front of a crowd of people, have you ever been like Psst, Let's go, and then nothing? <laughs> so, I've got two responses for this one as well. <laughs> the first the first one is yes, and that's why we do Misfire Drill. That's why we train extensively on what to happen when it doesn't work. Because if it doesn't work, mm. you got to safely make sure it won't work, period. Okay. <laughs> Gunpowder's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, especially black powder. So... Uh, we've had times where it was an issue with the primer. We've had times where it was an issue with the gunpowder. And a very big part of that is diagnosing where did the issue come from. So if you just have a bad primer and it didn't strike properly, then you're going to wait a couple seconds. You're going to make sure that there isn't a hang fire so that primer doesn't decide to go off on its own accord. <laughs> And then you're going to use a set of pliers to grab it from a very safe distance, dunk it in some water, so that way it's not going to go off. And you may be able to try again with a different primer. Yeah. Uh, If it's an issue with the gunpowder, which usually happens when there's a lot of moisture or if the gunpowder's old, then that's a case where you're going to wait, you're going to make sure that the primer doesn't go off, that there isn't that kind of hang fire. And after that, you are flooding that barrel. So you are putting water down the vent killing that gunpowder as thoroughly as you can. And people are usually pretty understanding of it. Usually you are going to offer some kind of alternative. So, hey, the cannon didn't go off. Let me show you a musket instead. Yeah. Uh, But I got to take care of this first. Yeah, yeah. This is... (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) And if you play up the kind of historical accuracy side of things, Mm -hmm. that kind of, hey, this is what they would have done if these guns didn't go off. We got to be careful. Mm. Uh, People will be pretty understanding of that now the flip side of that is times where there is no way that these guns should have gone off and through some miracle we made it happen uh and this comes into that kind of very late 18th early 19th century style of firing with the powder trails Mm. And what we use for igniting the powder trails is called a lint stock, which is basically a rope on a stick uh-huh. <laughs> with some kind of accelerant, so some kind of fuel on the rope, so that way it'll keep burning for a long period of time. And we use that as our torch for lighting these cans. It's what they would have used historically as well. Yeah. So I, years ago, this, this must have been like three or four years ago, it was on a Veterans Day weekend, Uh was doing an 1812 style demonstration of our six pounder, which is a small, medium sized cannon. Mm-hmm. It's the type of can that you would have seen that you see in like pirates, of the Caribbean and stuff like that. It's the iron cast cannons that would have been on the decks of ships and things okay. like that. Uh, and we were doing this demonstration. We were firing at a boat that was passing by trying to salute them. And it is windy, it is rainy, and I'm by myself with somebody nearby to observe uh, just in case the worst happened. And uh, so I'm trying to juggle all these different things of getting gunpowder in this cannon, keeping the gunpowder dry and keeping it from blowing away because of the wind and rain. Also having to make sure that my torch doesn't go out because it's really hard to light them there. <laughs> and so I was kind of having to go back and forth every which way, blowing on the match, making sure it was staying lit and using my hat, which the 1812 style hats, these big leather bucket hats. Mm-hmm. 
to sit on top of the gunpowder and keep it dry while I was getting everything ready. <laughs> and uh, I, I made it happen. So these guns are pretty dang resilient. But <laughs> the more experience you get, the more you learn how to make sure that everything goes smoothly. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess and that means like instincts, you know, because my first instinct when you were telling me that was like to turn around and tell a joke, which is why I don't shoot cannons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a lot of that comes from being very diligent with what you do. So you you check, you double check, you triple check your kit to make sure that you have enough primers so that you have the means to make sure things that stay lit. You make sure that you have water on hand more than readily available should you need to flood a cannon yeah I guess. and you learn how to use all the tools and all the equipment to uh their most optimal ability yeah so that's yeah we've had stuff. guns misfire but it's so fascinating dude that stuff is so fascinating i get oh god but you know what you're not only a the coolest like civil war cannon blower upper i've ever talked to in my entire <laughs> life you also uh told me that you fence saber which i'm not exactly sure what that means but i would love to talk about it that's the like white suit stick fighting thing right <laughs> yes uh, so uh saber is a type of fencing and when you get into sport fencing you've got a couple different styles that you're going to see which is saber foil a pay mm-hmm. and the idea is that each different style is representing a different type of sword that they would have used historically mm-hmm. and they all have different point scoring systems uh, I always thought swords were cool. Yeah. Because uh, who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> I, I know there are people out there, but... And so it was always something I wanted to get my hands onto if I could. Mm-hmm. So in college, my school had a fencing club. Signed on. Worked with them for a little while. And learned how to fence Saber, which is probably the most generous of the three styles of sword fencing. Mm-hmm. Because it's a lot of what you're seeing kind of in pop culture of them actually swinging the swords back and forth and the parries, the repasse and things like that. Uh-huh. Some of the different styles have more rigid scoring systems. So there's only certain areas of the body that you can hit to earn your points mm-hmm. or you can only thrust your weapon. You can't actually swing it. And so it comes into finding your fit. I gotcha. I gotcha. So you just were like, Oh, I'm going to start fencing now. Like, (laughs) yeah, I just, I wanted to learn how to, I wanted to learn how to sword fight and I made it happen. That's so cool. Um, (laughs) Now I've expanded from there a little bit. So first and foremost, I have an older brother and my older brother is a Kendo practitioner. Kendo is basically Japanese fencing Uh and they use bamboo wooden sabers for that. So I've looked into that a little bit. I've had some experience with that. And it's very different because there's, I'm going to do my best to explain this, but in Kendo, you're trying to kind of replicate that samurai spirit. Yeah. And so you actually basically have to call your shots. So when you're attacking your opponent, you're doing the strike, but you're also saying where you're striking. Oh, cool. (laughs) So a lot of European uh, fencing is around trying to feint and get around your opponent's guard. Mm-hmm. Where the more Japanese style of fencing is, I want to be so good at what I do <laughs> that you can't even react to it. <laughs> yeah, that's super cool. So, like, but, this is like emulating sword fighting. Could I, like, toss you a sword and you could, like, swashbuckle or whatever? <laughs> I, I actually can. Yeah! Uh, that's, that's from where this last little part comes into play. So getting out of school, getting away from the clubs, I still wanted to learn how to fight. And so that got into two different fields, which are HEMA, which stands for Historical European Martial Arts, Mm. as well as some self-studies. So HEMA is, I kind of call it full contact fencing. (laughs) And the idea is that instead of learning how to use a one-handed sword, there's a bunch of different aspects of HEMA, but most practitioners use long swords. So the two-handed Swords, kind of like you're going to see out of something like Game of Thrones or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And with HEMA, it's very full contact where you're actually trying to hit them. You're trying to hit them very hard. (laughs) And you're trying to get around their guards. Yeah. Um, In sport fencing, only one person's usually going to get the point. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Sabre, there's a concept called right of way, which is if I successfully defended against you previously and Mm -hmm. then we hit each other at the same time, I get the point because I showed greater technical prowess. Uh-huh. 
In Hema, if you hit each other at the same time, you both get a point. Oh, okay. But if you hit if you hit him and he doesn't hit you, you get extra points. Hey. <laughs> because you got that clean kill. You didn't get killed while you were killing them. Uh, and Hema encor- in, excuse me, encompasses different weapons as well. So you'll see uh, short sword and buckler. You'll see some of the Hema guys will actually learn using these historical manuals. Uh, how some of the great swords, how some of the pike formations worked, and all these different things. Oh, cool. Um, and the Hema organization I worked with very briefly, some of their guys were even getting into what was called Ringen, which is historical German wrestling. <laughs> so the idea is that it's still legal in some organizations uh-huh. to disarm your opponent and then ground them, and you can get your point that way. <laughs> So you got these guys who are who are six six and a half feet tall, gym bros. So they're really well cut. Yeah, going up against guys who are kind of like me, who are kind of nerdy and just wanted to learn how to sword fight. <laughs> but you develop up your different styles. Yeah, and I actually managed to marry marry the two the museum work, the reenactment work, and the sword fighting. Yeah, cool. And that comes in the last little bit, which is self studies. Mm. Uh, so. One, this came about from one of the books that we had in one of our libraries, which was actually a manual of saber combat that was written for the U.S. Army in the 1850s. Whoa. And so a lot of officers were issued swords. Most, More often than not, the swords that they were given were mostly just decorative. Yeah. But they would still teach them how to fight with a sword because if that's what you have, a sword and a sidearm, because you're using that sword to give orders to your men more than you're fighting. Mm-hmm. You still want to know how to protect yourself if the enemy closes on you. Yeah. And so, as a result, added to my uh, saber repertoire are a lot of these actually very practical techniques for the time period. Yeah. Not practical today, obviously. Uh, you never know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if somebody comes at me with a bayonet today, I'd be you're, very concerned. You're good. Hey, but you'd be ready. And that's what I'm saying. I would. I would. <laughs> um,. But things like using a sword to actually, as I was saying with the bayonet, deflect somebody who's charging you with a bayonet and take their weapon from them, uh. or things like that, uh, or a lot of a lot of it's very disarming. So it's taking their weapons from them, taking their capability of fighting. Mm-hmm. So, so like when you're doing this stuff, like uh, uh, does it like hurt? Like you said, you're trying to hit the other dude. Like, <laughs> does that hurt, man? And like, <laughs> so. There's two answers to that, and the short answer is yes. <laughs> the long answer is adrenaline's a hell of a drug. Yeah. <laughs> so after you get hit once or twice in a day, you're 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 not gonna feel it too too much until <laughs> later on. Uh, and to be frank, you just you get used to it, and that might sound kind of horrible, but it's yeah. really not that bad. You're not everything you're fighting with is either synthetic, so they're nylons or plastics, or they're blunted metal. Yeah. So you're not at risk of getting your arm chopped off by any of it. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, but you'll uh, you'll get a bruise here and there, but it's uh, not the end of the world. Is there like like special equipment you're supposed to be like wearing? Do you at least get like some sort of pad? Yes. <laughs> like if dude's coming at me with a claymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I know any claymore practitioners, but that would be fascinating. Uh, yes. So a lot of what you're going to be wearing is tailored to what type of style you're wearing, uh, style you're practicing. Mm. So in sport fencing, you're not swinging as hard against each other. You're only using one hand on your weapon. And more often than not, your points are based on thrusting, which doesn't hurt as bad because it's just like a very hard poke. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're going to be wearing just a very basic gambeson garment, a little padding and a mask to protect your face and protect your, uh, mouth eyes head from getting hit okay okay well that makes me feel better you know as you get into (laughs) but as you get into the the more intense type of stuff so does the gear yeah so with hema uh generally they're wearing padded gambesons so it's like a coat with about a half inch of padding to help soften those blows (laughs) you're actually wearing gauntlets which are leather gauntlets that are protecting your hands from uh getting broken when you're getting hit and you're wearing a bit more of a reinforced kind of mask to it with a little more padding. 
Uh, and then those kendo guys, they actually wear very similar where they have a breastplate that they wear, <laughs> a helmet, gauntlets for their wrists and their hands, and uh, a little bit of extra protection around their legs as well. Yeah. Oh, man. So, so it's very much about respecting the amount of equipment that you have. Mm. Uh, the older brother I mentioned earlier who is a, fin- who's a kendo practitioner, I uh, met with him couple weeks ago and uh we we had it out because that's just what we do (laughs) so i had a couple of my training swords in the car and was just like hey do you want to have a few bouts well about halfway through he goes uh are you sure you don't want to be wearing padding for this (laughs) i'm like it's fine just don't hit me in the face well he i was ducking to get ready to lunge into him for a for a strike Uh right at the same time he was doing a very high strike oh and so as a result, he hits me in the face, he breaks my glasses, <laughs> uh, and I've got a cut on my nose still from it. <laughs> and when we went inside, my sister-in-law was just like, oh my god, what happened to you? And I'm just like, it's fine, it's fine, I've had worse. <laughs> the glasses got fixed, and the only thing that really hurt in the long run was my pride, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, you get used to it. Yeah. And it was my own fault for knowledgeably practicing without equipment yeah yeah. we could have had equipment readily available (laughs) anyone listening don't be irresponsible actually wear your equipment it's bad for you not to (laughs) man that sounds so fun that sounds so fun like but maybe what sounds funner though is trying to explain to your uh your boss at the museum what's wrong with your face (laughs) (laughs) well it was during a long weekend so i uh, i didn't have to worry too much about that And conveniently, the cut is like right under the bridge of my glasses. So, oh, okay, it, uh, well, you're, you're solid. Well yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You didn't come in with a full two black eyes, and you're like, then you had to tell people about <laughs> civil war. If I had come in with a full two black eyes, it would have just been like I got into a I got into a sword fight and I lost. And I wouldn't even be lying. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that that stuff is so fascinating, man. I just I don't know. I'm blown away. But if you can believe it, we've been doing this for an hour, bud. You know, I can yep. listen to you talk about this stuff. God, it's just so cool to me. It's just so cool. Like, <laughs> talk about it. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh yeah, man. So a few things I'll do before I uh, before I let you go is I've been starting this new thing where I uh, I'm actually uh, I'm starting a playlist of all the people that I uh, interview and I ask them what is their favorite song right now, not of all time, not the you know don't be pretentious or anything like that. If there's a song stuck in your head today or a song that you think about when I ask you that question. What is it? And I'm gonna throw it in the playlist so everybody kind of hear what people sound like. <laughs> so the the one that I've been listening to a lot. This is uh, just what pops up on my YouTube usually. Yeah, uh, is a song called Apex by a band called Unleash the Archers. Oh, <laughs> what kind of song is that? Uh, so Unleash the Archers is a uh, female-fronted power metal band. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but Apex is very kind of ballad style, so it's it's like it's like an eleven minute long song. It's not it's not short. Yeah, <laughs> but it starts very folky, mm-hmm. where it's just kind of got the very light guitar and the female singer singing about the, where she's at and talking about Hello Mountain and things like that. Uh-huh. And then it just launches into this full like power metal ballad halfway through, and then it settles back down as you're coming down. <laughs> I use it as I use it as a workout song, so it's it pops up a lot. Yeah, that's so. It's cool. good for when you're getting your intensity up. Yeah, or getting it hit in the face with a sword. <laughs> 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 uh, well, like I said, I'm gonna throw this on a playlist. I've been working on this playlist all day, and I've been getting all the people that I've uh, recorded before to email me and tell me their songs. It's gonna be uh, on a playlist called Bitter and Jaded, the original motion picture soundtrack. My wife picked the name and it was killing me today when she <laughs> sent it to me. Um, <laughs> and so that way I just thought it'd be like a full, cool, fun project because not only is everyone interesting, so is their music taste. And I've gotten some wild uh, submissions just today. I can only imagine, man. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> and then the last thing I'll do before I let you go is I gotta do a final question. I do this with every single one of my guests. I don't tell you what it is. I just ask the question and it's not going to be due about kind of what we were talking about. Well, yours is a little bit more specific. Are you ready, man? I'm ready. Let's hit, let's go. <laughs> All right. If Night at the Museum was real, oh. which exhibit do you wish would come to life and why? 
Now, is this for museums that I work at or just period? Just like, period. Am I at the Smithsonian? Okay. Sure. You could be anywhere you want to be. <laughs> um, as, like, and this goes with you saying night at the museum, too, because uh, that's the thing. But uh, I would love for an exhibit of, like, Teddy Roosevelt to come alive, because <laughs> you just, you, you latch on to these people as you study all of this, and some de- people definitely stick out, and... It, any of the more charismatic presidents would be cool to talk to, but you think about someone like him and just the life that he led going from an charismatic kid to the icon of manliness. <laughs> uh, but also all the tragedy that he had in his life, too. Yeah. And just getting to that point, it's like, how did you get shot and still give a speech and insult <laughs> your assassin at the same time? So I'm going to go with an exhibit of Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, that's that's cool, yeah. man. What would you guys like? Sip coffee and talk about, or you could fight, you could sword fight. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually a thing, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a lot of uh, older sword training, they use what were called single sticks, which are basically just like uh, inch diameter wooden dowels. Uh-huh. And uh, he practiced single stick on the White House lawn. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, actually. <laughs> you could challenge probably... him to single stick? You think you could take Teddy Roosevelt? <laughs> no, no, there's no way. <laughs> but I would have a memory from it. Yeah, <laughs> he- yeah cool. man. Yeah, man. That's so cool. I was just immediately thinking dinosaurs, man. I was just like, I, they'd probably try to eat me, but I've always wanted to see one. You know, Jurassic Park's my favorite movie of all time. And I would just want to see one do what it does. You know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't care if it eats me. That's fine. Whatever. I just wanted to see it. And then I could live. I could die peacefully. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, ho- hopefully you'd live long enough to get to see it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sneak up behind me and... <laughs> <laughs> oh god well thanks so much for coming on the show man this has been awesome you know i feel like i learned a whole bunch of stuff you know you you got so much interesting stuff to talk about i didn't even get to half the questions but you know i just i don't know i I get i get into a mood and i just want to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn so again thanks for coming on the show uh if you're out there and you're hearing my voice and you want to come on the show please visit my website it's www.bitterandjadedpodcast.com or you can email me directly at bitterandjadedpodcast at gmail.com it goes right to my email we can set it up we're talking through skype right now me and harris is just hanging out i'm learning all about museums and i'm gonna start fencing apparently that sounds rad (laughs) (laughs) not that hard to pick up (laughs) but again Um, thanks bud i super appreciate you doing this and i will talk to you later okay yeah you have a good one man you as well